From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Students and faculty call on colleges to divest endowments from fossil fuel stocks, but most trustees and administrators resist the demands. Trustees are are disproportionately coming from uh, financial industries. You're getting a lot of investment bankers, a lot of consultants. And I think there's an emotional component to this. I think it feels like a repudiation of what the trustees have done with their lives. The climate of disconnect between faculty and campus bosses. Also a trip to a community farm to help glean the last of the fall harvest to give to hungry people. I love the gleaners. They come and bring me fresh vegetables from their garden, and I give them out here in the pantry to the community, and everybody loves it. It's real food from Mother Earth, from loving hands that planted it. And it's going to fall real good in the stomach. (laughs) That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, innovating to make the world a better, more sustainable place to live. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston and PRI, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Keystone XL pipeline has now been in the pipeline for six years, and though Democrats in the Senate recently blocked a congressional move to force the hand of President Obama, it may still get the green light. Republicans say they'll try again after they take control of both sides of Congress in January. For the Canadian producers of the highly polluting tar sands oil, speed is essential, as the world price of oil has dropped sharply, squeezing profitability and scaring investors. Keystone XL's fast path to the Gulf Coast refineries would get tar sands oil to market cheaper and make increased production more attractive. For insight, we turn to energy investment strategist Joe Stanislaw. Joe, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me, Steve. Considering the prospects for the price of oil, how crucial is Keystone uh, to making it uh, economically viable to use uh, tar sands oil? Does it make a difference right now in the short term? Probably not a whole lot at all. <laughs> but let's be realistic. So far, that oil has not been moving through those pipelines. It's been going east and west through other already existing pipelines. There are other pipelines being built in Canada, uh, one going east, one going west, to the tune of about 2 million barrels a day of oil equivalent flow. So that oil is going to be produced. It's going to be moved. That's a fact. Uh, when, it, when it actually is produced and moved is an issue of pricing and timing, but it's going to happen over the next five or ten years. If it's delayed 20 years, if there are enough objections to it on the environmental front, they may pull back on that. But with current situation and alternative, potential alternative routes for exporting, over the next five or ten years, it'll happen. Now, Joe, I know you're familiar with the argument uh, that's put forth by some that uh, to protect the climate, two-thirds at least of present oil and carbon-based fuel reserves need to stay in the ground. Um, How do you reconcile uh, additional infrastructure like Keystone uh, against those kind of concerns? In the short term, we're not going to get off the stuff, as they say, and and oil will move, but there will be that transition period taking place, and it will begin to accelerate in the mid-20s, probably. Uh, but equally, I think more and more people will recognize that you know, there used to be the fear of peak oil supply. Uh, that's now certainly been discredited. The real issue is people are going to find new ways not to use this stuff. People will be using it much more efficiently. Alternative sources will be found. Peak oil demand is really should be the factor people are looking at. Joe Stanislaw, you're saying that uh, 
really only in another decade or so uh, are we going to be looking for more and more oil. How much sense does it make to uh, install large infrastructure like a Keystone XL pipeline if it's really only going to be around for, say, a decade or so? Uh, there will still be a lot of oil being used after a decade from now. You know, these pipelines will last a lot longer, without question. Uh, But if you can make a good return in 10 years, you're feeling pretty comfortable. To what extent do you see uh, Keystone XL as, uh, well, frankly, more of a political lightning rod than uh, something that the oil industry absolutely has to have to operate uh, effectively? I I would say it it is a very political issue in to use some words that you used before, it's almost a lightning rod. It captures all of those features from an environmental point of view that, you know, ignites everyone's passions, concerns. It's oils moving across national boundaries. It's oils that have a potentially higher environmental footprint and CO2 footprint than other oils. Uh, and it also focuses attention on something that, you know, does have a very large long-term potential because it is the largest oil resource base in the world. And that maybe now is the time to try and stop it in its tracks, if one can, to stop it from from realizing that long-term potential. So that focuses attention. Well, and of course, uh, this expansion, you talk about economic costs eventually coming down, but the environmental costs for these sources seem to be going up. That You go to sensitive areas like tar sands, you go into... Uh, deep, deep in the Gulf of Mexico, and we saw what happened there. The risks in the Arctic, people are very concerned about, and uh, and and there's a lot of head scratching about what would happen in Brazil if that deep, deep, deep uh, drilling ever took place. I, I think you raised the the right point, uh, Steve. Of uh, one of the key costs uh, in production is the environmental cost. I will say, though, Steve, it's fairly interesting. If you look at the environmental cost that you know, people identify and say, you must meet these. Now, CO2 is a challenge that has not been met yet, but on most others, the costs are high, but over time, even those environmental costs come down with the learning curve, the improvement in technology, how it uh, invigorates new research and development to create the technologies at lower cost that can meet those environmental costs. How long can the oil industry afford to wait on uh, moving forward with Keystone XL? It's been, what, six years? Uh, in other words, how hard are they going to push uh, for action when the new Republican-dominated Congress arrives in January to uh, force uh, President Obama's hands to uh, approve this thing? The longer it takes to realize an investment you, that you start, the less likely you're going to have any reasonable return on that investment. Uh, and, you know, each additional month at this point is in every six months, you know, you're, you're, you're impacting the economic uh, potential of this project. So I've been asking myself for a few years. It's been going on a long, long time. When does the company give up? I just don't know the answer to that. Joe Stanislaw is an expert on energy and technology investment strategy and the founder of the J.A. Stanislaw Group. Joe, thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. Steve, it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for the challenge. Students at Harvard Law School have sued the Harvard University Corporation for failing to divest its endowment from fossil fuels. The complaint charges, quote, mismanagement of charitable funds and intentional investment in abnormally dangerous activities and was filed in state court on behalf of seven students and future generations. This comes on the heels of hundreds of Boston-area college faculty calling on their schools to divest. City University of New York law professor Evan Mandery is a graduate of Harvard Law who has written about the resistance of Harvard President Drew Kilpin Faust and hundreds of other college trustees to divestment. Evan Mandery joins us. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, thanks very much for having me. 
So why aren't more schools doing what many of their students are demanding, that is, get rid of investments that uh, promote the heavy carbon footprint? Well, it's uh, it's tough to answer, right? Because uh, university presidents are academics and academics are overwhelmingly liberals. They're not climate change skeptics. So it's, it's hard to figure that out. Um, I have guesses, but they're only guesses. Well, let's talk about some of the guesses that you've written about. Uh, you point out that uh, some university presidents say that uh, endowments exist to support academic missions, such as scholarships, and shouldn't be used as ammunition in a struggle for social change. Right. I think it's pretext. I don't think they actually believe that. You know, many universities ultimately divested from South Africa, approximately 150 did. Many other universities have divested from uh, tobacco companies. Uh, Harvard divested from Chinese companies that did business in the Sudan. So I don't think that that absolute principle is really something they believe. It's just something that they say. Huh. So if they don't believe it, why do they say it? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's trustees that are making the decision as opposed to it being a university community-wide decision. And why would trustees be opposed to divestment? The trustees aren't exactly a representative cross-section of the university. Trustees are, are disproportionately coming from uh, financial industries. You're getting a lot of investment bankers, a lot of consultants. And I think there's an emotional component to this. I think it feels like a repudiation of what the trustees have done with their lives. Now, of course, some of the most important research on the effects of fossil fuel emissions comes out of universities, places right. like Harvard, Yale, why are these institutions opposed to growing their endowment in every way possible that supports not just the finance of that research, but what the research results tell us? But first of all, you, you've made an important point, which is this isn't what professors are saying. Trustees are just an, an insulated minority that are making this group independent of students and faculty. I think there are almost 500 university movements uh, to divest. So there's really a gross disconnect between what these boards of trustees are saying and what the actual university communities are saying. Well, let's go back to one part of the money. How much would divestment actually cost? So there's no simple answer to that question. According to some research, which is actually done by a petroleum think tank, approximately 2% of endowment assets are invested in fossil fuel-related companies. By their estimates, they slightly outperformed other endowment investments during the past 10 years. By some other estimates, actually, they slightly underperformed. But either way, you're talking about pennies if they rid the endowment of these assets. One of the arguments for not divesting is that uh, schools keep a seat at the table in these companies by the power to file or co-sponsor or certainly vote on shareholder resolutions. Uh, what do you think of that position? Right. Well, that evokes, uh, to me, President Reagan's position during the 1980s in, in favor of constructive engagement. It was his argument against uh, American divestment from South Africa. So it would be interesting if some universities were very heavily invested in fossil fuels and actively voting their shares in to make those companies more responsible to, say, encourage them to report on climate change or include environmentalists on their corporate boards. But none of the universities are actually doing that, so I don't actually understand why the argument is being raised. I wonder if at the end of the day, Evan, you see divestment by universities as an ethical issue. Uh, I see it at the beginning as an ethical issue. I, I'm, a, I'm an alum of college. I read the president's letter in which she says that the school has no ethical obligation, that it's 
It should maximize its return on endowment resources and use those to support the academic mission. It's not, in President Faust's words, it's not an instrument to impel social change. And I'm just shocked by that. We could all easily envision uh, investments that universities can make that no one would tolerate. So if Harvard had money invested in a company that profited by using child labor, there isn't a single person who would think that that was defensible because Harvard was generating a greater return in its endowment or using that money to support financial aid. So it's striking to think that universities wouldn't have any ethical obligation in this context. But the idea that it's not even an issue on the table is extraordinary to me. What kind of traction do you see the divestment movement gaining? Of course, universities are going to divest. Uh, One thread of the negative responses to my argument is, is from climate change deniers. But that's not what's going on with universities. I don't believe I've never met President Faust or or any of the other uh, university presidents. I don't believe a single one of them doubts the science on climate change. And many of them in their letters, refusing to divest, say that they accept the science behind climate change and, and view it as ethically problematic. They just don't see divestment as a way to address it. But Man, oh man, they so grossly underestimate the symbolic importance that universities play in setting tones for moral debate. The question is whether they'll divest at a point where it'll actually lead to some good happening more quickly than it otherwise would have, or whether it'll just be a purely symbolic statement just because it would be a public relations nightmare if they failed to do so, which, by the way, is basically how the South African divestment story ended. Maybe if this were 20 years ago and we were still debating the science, you can imagine universities being reserved in their approach. There's no such justification now. Evan Mandery is a law professor at the City University of New York. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Coming up, how some of the tiniest things could help explain the universe. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now, we don't often report on particle physics, but there's a lot of news in this cosmic field. Recently, the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva found evidence of the Higgs boson, a subatomic particle predicted years ago to partly explain how energy can become mass. And now researchers using data from the collider have discovered more new particles. Two of them are called mesons, which seem to exist for the briefest of moments as tiny subatomic particles known as quarks come together to make bigger particles like protons and electrons. This finding helps explain a fundamental force of the universe. Tim Gershon of the University of Warwick in the UK is lead author of the study in Physical Review Letters. He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. So uh, can you describe for our listeners in layman's terms, if you possibly can, what exactly have you found? So we have discovered two new particles. These particles are of a class of particles called mesons, which means that they're composed of smaller particles, which we call quarks. Quarks are among the fundamental particles of nature. You cannot divide a quark into anything smaller. So let's imagine if we look at the world around us and we can see, uh, if we've got a nice view, we can see trees. And trees, of course, are built of proteins that contain molecules, and the molecules are made up of atoms. And inside an atom is a nucleus at the center of it, surrounded by electrons. If we go closer still into the nucleus, we find that that is made up of protons and neutrons. 
uh, held together. But inside the protons and neutrons themselves, we find quarks. So basically, you've gone as tiny as it's possible for anyone to go to look at what makes up our universe. That's right. That's right. So tell me about the quarks that are out there. There are six types of quarks that we know about, and they're called up, down, strange, charm, top, and bottom. So the lightest ones are the up and the down, and those make up the protons and the neutrons. Uh, But the heavier ones can be produced in in particle accelerators. These mesons do not exist as stable particles in nature, but we can produce in particle accelerators. The new particles that we've discovered contain a charm quark, uh, as well as another quark. They're mesons, so they contain a quark and an antiquark. So they're subatomic particles, but what exactly did you do to actually create these new particles not known before? Well, we work uh, with data from the LHCb experiment at the CERN Large Hadron Collider. Uh, The Large Hadron Collider has received a lot of publicity for the discovery of the Higgs boson at uh, experiments called ATLAS and CMS, and quite rightly so. But there is also other experiments at the LHC, and in particular, the LHCb experiment is designed not to look for, for very heavy particles like the Higgs boson, but to understand the properties of lighter particles called B hadrons. So the B here stands for bottom, which, as I mentioned, was one of the six quarks. I should say that actually sometimes we call it beauty, which is a, perhaps a, a nicer name than bottom. Well, yeah, charm and beauty. I mean, come on. <laughs> indeed, indeed. But then Shakespeare had a bottom and uh, I suppose he had some beauty as well. Uh, anyway, the beauty quark decays to charm. So by studying the decays of beauty quarks, we can see the production of charm quarks and we can study the different types of charm meson that can be produced. Now, the quarks are bound together by the strong interaction. The strong interaction is one of the four fundamental forces of nature that we know. The others are gravity, the electromagnetic interaction and the weak interaction. And as the name implies, the strong interaction is very, very strong. So when you get inside a proton or a neutron, if you are able to do so, the strong interaction is the only thing that matters. All the other forces are irrelevant at that scale. So the strong force or the strong interaction is a really a really vital force of nature. I mean, you spoke about the four forces. These are the forces that basically hold everything together in our universe. That's right. On the cosmological scale, let's say gravity is the most important force and gravity holds together our planet and our solar system and galaxies and things on on a large scale like that. When we look at the molecular scale, then the electromagnetic interaction is the most important and uh, that's what keeps electrons orbiting around the nuclei in atoms. But as we go to a smaller scale, it is the strong interaction that is the most important and takes over. So you, you, what you have just discovered will help you understand the strong force, uh, which is what holds these mesons together. Um, the weak force holds what together? Uh, the weak force doesn't hold uh, things together. So the strong interaction holds nuclei together. But the place where people would be most familiar with the, the weak force is that it's responsible for causing nuclear decays. The weak interaction also has a very crucial role for processes that are going on inside the sun, for example. I've realised that you have just uh, added to our, our knowledge about, uh, about particle physics by having discovered two new ones, and it seems a little 
sort of like um, <clears throat> unkind to say, are you going to find more? But are you going to find more? Are you, are you looking for more? The development that I'm really excited about is the possibility that we can use the same technique to try and study the weak interaction. And if so, this could be a great way to learn more about one of the greatest puzzles that we have, not only in particle physics, but in all of science at the moment, why the universe exists at all. The universe is believed to have started in a big bang, essentially a ball of energy. And energy will always produce equal amounts of matter and antimatter. So at the start of the universe, there was an equal amount of matter and antimatter. But in the universe we see around us today, we see only matter, no matter how far out into space we look. And uh, this is connected to a phenomenon that uh, particle physicists call CP violation. Um, but this is really just a jargon that means an asymmetry between matter and antimatter. So we want to be able to study differences between the behavior of matter and antimatter in the laboratory, but we still haven't discovered enough different types of CP violation in order to be able to explain where the asymmetry in the universe comes from. And therefore, we're looking for, for more sources. And what I'm very excited about is that we can perhaps use this technique that we've discovered these new particles with to perhaps learn more about this mystery of how the universe evolved. So something of some kind happened very early on that means that what we have is more matter than antimatter, or we obviously wouldn't exist, because if matter and antimatter uh, basically wipe each other out, annihilate each other, then there would be no matter and there would be no stars and there would be no Earth and there would be no us. That's exactly right, and, and what a bleak universe that would be. Tim Gerson is a professor at the University of Warwick in the UK. He spoke with Living on Earth's Helen Palmer. Much of North America is now facing the cold, dark time of year. Close to Thanksgiving, farmers' markets are piled high with squash for the celebration before they shut down. But that doesn't always mean that farmers' fields are empty. In fact, a lot of perfectly good, cold-hardy food often remains. Now, thanks to the age-old but newly popular custom of gleaning, some of the fresh food that would otherwise go to waste is getting to some people who need it most. Last year, Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom went to check out what the gleaners do. Her report starts in farm fields west of Boston. Thanks for coming out today, guys. We're at Waltham Fields Community Farm. So we are going to harvest some lettuce and maybe some collard greens as well. Matt Crawford welcomes a group of five volunteers in the parking lot of a small farm 10 miles west of Boston. They've come to glean to collect the last of this year's greens to donate to a food pantry, the produce that would otherwise go to waste. Matt leads the gleaners out to the long furrowed fields. Most of them are empty now, rows of soil waiting for the spring planting. But four rows at the end are covered in a long white gauzy sheet. Matt pulls back the fabric to reveal perfect heads of red and green leaf lettuce. In the summer, they would easily fetch two or three dollars a piece at the farmer's market. I'm sure most of you have harvested lettuce before, but I'll show you the best way to do it. Carefully grab it, pull it back, tilt it away from the ground, from the earth, and cut it right at the base so you leave the roots in the ground, and then you prune off any of the more dirty or dead-looking leaves, anything that's yellow and then we'll put it right into a bag. There's uh, stuff besides lettuce, leave that up. We're just going for the lettuce? Just the lettuce, yeah, all this other stuff is weeds, which are actually edible, but we're not gonna yeah, eat them. Start the Volunteer Bruce Bell gets to work at the top of the row, 
crouching down to cut the lettuce with a small, sharp knife. This is a beautiful one. A few dead leaves, some dirt, but more or less beautiful head of lettuce. I'm, I'm a gardener also, and I wish I could do things as good as this. Come out here to admire everything else that's so beautiful, even at this late season. A few dead leaves here. Throw them off, brush off the dirt, and in we go. So why do you do it? Why do you like coming out here? Um, I like the exercise. I like the fresh air. I like the connection it makes to other people, that everyone should eat as well as I do, and I think I eat pretty well, and this is one way to help that along. You see how much, I wouldn't call it waste, but so much in the food chain that could go to waste if we weren't doing this. I think the farmers have big hearts. They don't want to see food go to waste. Zena Porter is one of the farmers at the Waltham Fields Community Farm. Porter says by this time of year, they no longer have a market for the produce left in the fields. At the end of the season, we reach a point where our staff levels drop off. We've met most of the demands of our CSA. And if it's been a good season, we still have some food in the field. And um, that food needs to go somewhere. And so, you know, we call on the gleaners to come and get the last of what's out in the fields so it doesn't go to waste. This community farm is run as a nonprofit, and giving back to the community is part of their mission. But Porter says there are also practical reasons for getting as much as possible out of the fields. Sometimes it's really important to clean out your fields. It's important to get, you know, anything that might carry disease through the winter out of your fields. There's a lot of insects that overwinter in certain crops, and if you leave that crop to rot there, that pest can overwinter, it's going to be there again in the spring. And um, I think there's probably some motivation in that as well. Gleaning is an ancient tradition. It's referred to in the Torah and the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19 instructs, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. Gleaning continued into the 19th century as a social safety net throughout much of Europe. Today, there are gleaning organizations in Europe and the U.S. Duck Caldwell is executive director of the Boston Area Gleaners. This year, we're going to recover over 70,000 pounds. That equals close to, when you convert that to four-ounce servings, 300,000 servings of fruit and vegetable. Caldwell says they pick at least 30 varieties of produce. All kinds of greens, eggplant, peaches, carrots, apples, turnips, squash, anything you might find in a farmer's market can be gleaned when there's a good harvest. We're going to serve about 25 farms this year with our gleaning. There are well over 1,000 in this area, so the potential is, is huge. You know, we're doing a good job meeting the demand we're getting currently from farmers, but the demand on the side where people actually need this food, there's much more there, so there's a lot. A lot of work to be done. After three hours of work, the volunteers picked 576 pounds of lettuce. They pack the harvest into banana boxes and load them into a van for delivery. Roughly half of what's gleaned goes to the nonprofit Food for Free, which distributes to 86 food banks from its headquarters in Cambridge. Sasha Papura is the executive director. Food for Free is an organization that essentially captures food that would otherwise go to waste, perfectly good, healthy food, and then distributes it into the emergency food system where it can reach those in need. Food for Free staff make daily rounds to local grocery stores to collect good food that would be thrown away at the end of the day. 
but she says what the Gleaner supply is special. By far, the Gleaner's food is, without question, the absolute best food we can get. It's the freshest. It's local. It's the people who are receiving it love fresh vegetables as much as anybody else does. Papura says it's relatively rare for food pantries to have access to fresh local produce. A lot of food pantries can get food from food banks, but it's typically shelf-stable, canned stuff, and it's very hard for small food pantries or other things to carry produce because they don't necessarily have the storage for it. They need it on the day that the pantry is opening. It's volunteer run, and because the gleaners and Food for Free can deliver day of, it really allows them to offer more than just canned sodium enhanced stuff. In the basement of the Food for Free office is a food pantry that serves hungry people in Cambridge. Sasha leads the way and introduces me to Ada Navarro, the food pantry manager. How are you? I am. What gave it away? (laughs) (laughs) Ada has a kind face and an affectionate manner. I love the gleaners. Okay, they come and bring me fresh vegetables from their garden, and I give them out here in the pantry to the community, and everybody loves it. Why do you think they love it? Because it's real food from Mother Earth, from loving hands that planted it, and it's going to fall real good in the stomach. <laughs> a volunteer, Freddie, stands amid boxes of produce and offers them to a small, frail, elderly woman named Anne. We have um, we want potatoes, onions. We have collard greens. Greens? You want and, collard greens? Uh, yeah. And lettuce? You have lettuce? We have a spring mix, so we have a... Um, you want a spring mix or this? A spring mix. Terrific. Sure. It's very good things. Do you like the the fresh uh, produce, ma'am? Absolutely. It's the best. Why is that? Well, very expensive. It's something hard to get. So I like it very much. What kind of things do you typically get this time of year? Anything green. It's beautiful. It's what they do is, is so important for us. I get things I couldn't afford. I get a lot of greens. It fills in spots I would not otherwise neglect. And it is a little gift. So it makes people happy. Visitors to the food pantry are young and old. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, and everything in between. Ada greets a familiar face. Come on, baby, we know. Rudolph West is a tall 63-year-old, missing most of his teeth, wearing an oversized trench coat. He says he's never heard of the Gleaners, but he loves the idea. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's it's really, it's charitable, and uh, someone's taking the initiative to try to do something for others. West lives at the Y and says he doesn't have access to cooking facilities, so he can't use the vegetables. But he's touched by the thought of the gleaners collecting food for the less fortunate. It's very helpful, and it's good to be charitable, you know. Pay your tithes. You know, that, that, that's my motto. So. I'm a very religious person, you know, which is a personal bond, but I hold dearly in my heart, and sometimes it's touching, and I shed tears over stuff like that. It shows how you can show piety like Jesus had. He was humble and submissive, and that's a good trait, a good characteristic. And I like that. So a charitable tradition that dates back to before the time of Jesus is alive and well here in Massachusetts, thanks to generous farmers and volunteers. 
For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom at the Food for Free Pantry in Cambridge. The Boston area gleaners have grown since Bobby reported this story last November. They're on track to double their annual harvest and collect 150,000 pounds from about 30 farms. They plan to deliver over 20,000 pounds of greens and roots and squash to pantries for Thanksgiving. Coming up, health-giving foods for you and the planet. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kidda. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Part of protecting the heritage of North America has involved restoring the bison to the Great Plains. Wes Olson brought them back to Grasslands National Park in Saskatchewan, and he served as Mark Seth Lender's guide there. On three separate occasions, Mark found himself surrounded by the entire bison herd. Imagine now the retreat of the ice. The vastness left behind, the ruins of the land all scree and gravel like a riverbed gone dry. 20,000 years of cloud and cold, then grass, the greening of the plains. Birdsong breaks the silence like a candle, and out of the past, bison come. The bulk of their looming shapes, the brown hair curled and coiled by eons of weather none of us could imagine or endure. And steady on they come. The grasslands are in fall's last bloom, the tall seed heads of primitive wheat swaying in the first of the morning, the yellow heliotrope in clusters all along the root of parade, and the red rust stalks of burdock like pennants flying. Buffalo berries, red as blood, spilling over and pulling the branches down, and the grass is sweet as clover. In the fading afternoon, Two great bulls, beards barbed like Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar, face each other down. They grunt like mountains rumbling. They back and brace and root to the ground. They turn. Their horns bow down, their breath sharp as a blade, eyes wide as the world and blind to any world that is not each other. The move that is slow and fast and comes without warning. The hook, the tear, the head-on rush... A breaking apart, a turning away, a great dust bath in the end, as if nothing ever happened. And the cow beside them only goes on with her grazing, the making of milk, the nursing of her new red calf, and they all move off into the last of the day that once was morning. Around me now, bison part like a river around an insignificant stone. They seem so many. They are so few. Sixty million strong they were. They merge into the blue-green of the land, and the odor of ice lingers, though the day was a hundred degrees, and the plains all a hazy shimmer under a barren midnight sun of a moon. Bison low in the distance and the dark. 
You can see Mark Sethlander's photographs of these bison at our website, LOE.org. Off to Conyers, Georgia now to find out what's happening beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter publishes environmental health news at ehn.org and thedailyclimate.org, and he's on the line. Hi, Peter. Well, hi, Steve. Let's talk about an apparent clean energy cover-up and a fossil fuel divorce. We'll start with a tale from the heartland, Ohio to be exact, where a state agency paid $435,000 for a comprehensive survey of the state of clean energy jobs in the state of Ohio. The report delivered some very strong and promising news on clean energy. They counted over 31,000 clean energy jobs. It's 25% more than even wind and solar supporters had thought were there. The only problem is that the state didn't want to hear about it, and it didn't deliver the report to anyone. Huh? They sat on a good news report? Why? They hid the report for over a year. Wright State University and the National Energy Research Firm, ICF, were chosen to prepare the report in 2012. Governor John Kasich was backing a bill to slow down alternative energy by freezing the state's renewable energy standards. The report, with its good economic news for wind and solar, was potential ammunition for clean energy advocates. And whoops! The report disappeared for over a year, during which time the bill was passed and signed by the governor. So how did they explain the disappearance and how did the information eventually come out? Well, I'll answer the second question first. A reporter named Dan Garino of the Columbus Dispatch got his hands on the report and filed a story on it last week. A state government spokesman said they buried the report because it had flawed data, but they never really said what the flaws were, and the report sat on a shelf for over a year before Ohio even told the folks who had prepared the report that there was a problem. Lo and behold, the state government released much of its info about the clean energy report on the same day Governor Kasich signed into law the bill that held back clean energy standards. So that's a possible clean energy cover-up. And uh, hey, you also said you had a tale about a fossil fuel divorce? Right. Uh, This past week, a billion-dollar fracking divorce settlement. Harold Hamm is one of the 25 richest people in America, a tycoon who struck it rich in the fracking bonanza in North Dakota, one of the biggest oil booms in decades. But Mr. Hamm's marriage has gone bust, and a judge has ruled that Sue Ann Hamm will also join the Billionaires Club. She'll eventually get a billion-dollar divorce settlement, one of the biggest in history. Wow, you'd think that a guy shrewd enough to become an oil billionaire would have an army of lawyers building him a bulletproof prenuptial agreement, huh? Yeah, funny thing about that, one of his staff lawyers at Continental Resources at the time of their wedding in 1988 was the soon-to-be former Mrs. Ham. She's already collected $25 million. She'll get $315 million by the end of the year. And after that, under a ruling by an Oklahoma judge, she'll have to squeeze by on an additional $7 million a month. And she says, by the way, that's uh, it's not enough bacon. Ooh. She may appeal the tiny judgment, and Mr. Ham will be worth only $17 billion, maybe even a little less, instead of $18 billion. But he's available. So maybe women are going to be lining up to marry Mr. Ham. Actually, his field of potential suitors just doubled. Thanks to another court ruling last month, Oklahoma now has marriage equality. (laughs) Okay, Peter, hey, tell me what's on the history calendar this week. Well, it's hard to believe it's been five years since the so-called ClimateGate incident. Thousands of email exchanges and other files from climate scientists were stolen from the University of East Anglia computer system, promptly found their way into the hands of colonists and political operatives who deny climate change, and it all really knocked the climate science community for a loop. 
A few widely publicized items from those thousands of emails were spun to make it sound like climate scientists were engaging in a vast conspiracy to make it all up. And as I recall, this all happened just before the big Copenhagen Climate Summit, right? Well, correct. And that made it a big story. The police treated the hacking as a crime, but they never solved it. Climate deniers treated it as a media bonanza, and they still do five years later. Multiple inquiries in the UK and the US exonerated the scientists, who were at worst maybe guilty of some poorly chosen words and catty remarks in the emails. You know, just like real people. Hmm. Climate scientists behaving like real people. What do they think of next? I don't know, Steve. Peter Dykstra is publisher of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news as ehn.org. Talk to you soon, Peter. Okay, Steve, thanks. We'll talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Now, this is the season here in the U.S. when many of us gather with friends and family around a table piled up with traditional and favorite foods to celebrate and give thanks. Some of those foods will be delicious, some will be healthy, and to highlight those that are both delicious and healthy, we turn now to celebrity chef Barton Seaver. Barton and Harvard nutritionist P.K. Newby have just published a new book called Foods for Health, Choose and Use the Very Best Foods for Your Family and Our Planet. Barton Seaver also directs the Healthy and Sustainable Food Program at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome to Living on Earth, Barton. Hi, Steve. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Foods for health. We think of vegetables, brightly colored things. Um, am I on the right track here? Absolutely. I, uh, food is is uh, the very basis of our health. And I think that the multicolored meals with lots of different vegetables, textures, aromas, tastes, but also it forms the basis of enjoyment. If it's just the same thing over and over again, then uh, we're not necessarily on a destined to be on a path towards health. And, and ultimately, food has to be delicious because the only food that is healthful for us is the food that actually makes it into our face. So it's got to be enjoyable, too. Now, in your book, uh, Barton, you've listed seasonal menus to highlight sustainable, healthy foods and how to prepare them in tasty ways. So uh, as we get towards the end of fall, and many places in America actually seem to have stepped into winter, could you explain what you've decided to include on your autumn splendor menu and why? Well, you know, autumn splendor, I think, is it, it's the most fun time of the year to cook by far. It is uh, when you are... Switching between seasons, you still have just a little bit of summer's bounty left over, those fresh, clean flavors that need little adulteration for them to be sexy and exciting. But you're also moving into uh, you know, those deep, rich, robust, uh, soul-warming flavors of, of squash. And uh, this is when food becomes, to me, its most effective in that... We nourish our bodies with far more than calories when we sit down to a meal. And especially around the holidays, I think we're most acutely aware of that. And uh, that, to me, is the splendor of autumn. Now, you start with spice mulled apple cider. When people walk into the house, they should immediately feel as though they're being welcomed. And... Filling the house with that sweet, slightly bitter, warm spice aroma of mulling cider is 
uh, you know, th- there's no more generous welcome than than that. Now, what about the salad? Uh, the roasted squash panzanella, you know, and this uh, harkens back to a uh, an Italian tradition where you use day-old bread. You you mix it in with vinaigrette and moist roasted vegetables and uh, nuts and, and raisins or something like that. And it really provides a, a hearty, filling, uh, and yet interesting component to a meal that, that's a little bit unexpected. And it offers us an opportunity to really introduce vegetables. And uh, that allows for a healthier meal all throughout. All right, let's move on now to the entree, and I'm really getting hungry. You know, coming into the fall, we often think of of turkey, roast turkey, roasted chicken, beef stews, but mixing it up a little bit with uh, something I love to do, quinoa cakes. Simply boil the quinoa down until it's nice and soft, and then mix it with a little bit of, you know, breadcrumbs, maybe an egg yolk, and then saute those up in a little olive oil and butter, and then serve those alongside roasted sweet potatoes with the aromatic, uh, lovely crunch of a cilantro almond pesto. And then put it on the side with a little bit of a sweet bitter component, such as uh, the braised broccoli with raisins and almonds. The raisins to add sweetness, balancing out that brassica bitterness, and then the, uh, the almonds adding crunch to the entire dish. Okay, by this time, I guess we would be ready for dessert. Desserts that I like to serve in the fall are, are taking advantage of just the wonderful bounty of fruits that we have, such as a baked apple, cored and then stuffed with a little bit of sweetened uh, Greek yogurt and then topped with a little bit of crunchy granola. And this is healthy, this is delicious, and wow, is this satisfying as well. Uh, Barton, in your book you mentioned turkey as a good source of protein. What's a good turkey? Well, a good turkey is one that's raised uh, in a natural way. You know, we, we eat turkey in America uh, very rarely, but for one occasion. And when that turkey hits the table, we have this very Norman Rockwell vision of this incredible round bird, plump breasts, you know, large meaty legs sticking up perfectly trussed with a golden brown crackly skin. Well, that's not what a bird looks like in nature. Uh, And so the farming techniques that are used uh, typically tend towards creating a product that looks good on the table. And in order to achieve the aesthetic we desire on a table, uh, we have to sort of visit a number of abuses on those turkeys from, you know, incredible, uh, you know, density in the, in the farming operations, which leads to disease vectors, therefore uh, necessitating antibiotic use, growth hormones to plump the breasts. And so I think the opportunity here is really as Americans to shift our expectations of, of what we expect uh, our food to be. Do we expect it to be you know, aesthetically perfect, you know, something that doesn't really exist in nature? Or do we want to really celebrate what that animal should be? So how should we select it and prepare turkey? Well, I think that there uh, is a rising popularity and availability of heritage breed turkeys. Uh, you know, red bourbon turkeys, uh, various breeds that have been farmed for centuries, And these birds all have intricate, nuanced flavors, much like heirloom tomatoes, all taste different. Uh, And these birds also have 
slightly different uh, sort of physical characteristics. Small, slender breasts, meaty, big, rich thighs and legs that are actually meant to carry the turkey around. And because that bird is not as meaty and plump and rich as the other uh, you know, birds that you commonly find in a supermarket, well, guess what? That leaves plenty more room for all those delicious vegetables and sides that fill up the table that, to me, are the best part of Thanksgiving and are also the healthiest part. So whether you live in the city or the country, uh, come the end of the summer harvest season, sometimes, hopefully, there's more than you can eat. How do you feel about frozen vegetables? You know, I grew up on frozen vegetables. That uh, was part of the the fluency I learned as a child that allowed me to pursue a career in food. And dinner was 365 nights a year, and it was cooked from scratch. And more often than not, it was jolly green giant vegetables frozen out out of a bag, you know, peas. But my dad understood what a little bit of salt and a tiny pat of butter could do. Uh, for a vegetable. And so if that's the cost structure you're operating on, fabulous. You know, just eating vegetables is a great start to ameliorating uh, the diets in America that are, that are currently not doing us any favors. Tell me, what menus are you planning for the holidays? Well, we've got a, uh, a farm right down the street that raises heritage turkeys and uh, we got a, a turkey that is probably a little too big for the n- number of people we're serving. But, you know, my whole thing is the sides, the mashed sweet potatoes, a little bit of orange juice in there to you know, give it a little aromatic punch topped with a little bit of uh, pecans and maple syrup and spicy broccoli. And I do a caramelized celery, walnuts and cranberry sauce to go alongside of it. Plenty of light, bright red wine, like a Beaujolais or Pinot Noir, oyster stew, oh, you name it. I mean, this is a chance to do exactly what Thanksgiving was designed to do, is to give us a moment of reflection and celebration of all the bounty we're uh, so fortunate to have. And since I live on the coast of Maine, I'll probably be throwing a lobster or two into my dinner. Barton Seaver is a celebrity chef and director of the Healthy and Sustainable Food Program at the Harvard Center for Global Health and the Environment. And his new book is called Foods for Health, which you wrote with nutritionist P.K. Newby. Thanks so much for taking the time today, Barton. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Produced by the World Media Foundation, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Baskin, Emma Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adlai Chen, Jenny Doring, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, and Jennifer Marquis are all part of our team. Our show was engineered by James Kerwood. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, and we give thanks to you for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. www.stonyfield.com PRI Public Radio International